0: You are listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, Practical Wisdom for Everyday Life. I'm your host, Justin Vakula. This is episode 71, with special guest, Kathy Young. We talk about free speech, the injustice taking place in left-leaning social justice circles, authoritarianism on the right, civility, responsible use of social media, political divisions, the danger of identity politics, and the intellectual dark web. She also questions popular movements including feminism and Black Lives Matter, highlighting many flaws where activism and ideology go wrong. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com where you can connect with me on social media, find past episodes, and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work by becoming a donor through Patreon or PayPal to receive special perks using referral links in the donate tab on my website and sharing my content. Email me with your thoughts, justinvacula at gmail.com. Thanks for your support. Kathy Young is a columnist for the Boston Globe and Reason, an author and a public speaker. Since September of 2000, Young has been a regular op-ed columnist for the Boston Globe. She also writes a monthly column for Reason Magazine. From 1993 to 1999, she was a weekly columnist for the Detroit News. Her columns, book reviews, and feature articles have appeared in many publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Newsday, the American Spectator, Salon.com, National Review, and The New Republic. Kathy was very generous with her time today as we had quite a lengthy discussion. Here it is. All right. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me
0: today we'll talk about the topic of justice particularly injustice that you've seen within left-leaning circles often trumpeting what they view as social justice you know a worrying trend attacking enlightenment values in a piece that you wrote for forward titled the left-wing threat to liberalism
1: ah, uh, right well uh specifically interested in uh, dealing with, and I've written on this uh, issue a number of times, is that uh, there's been a lot of discussion recently of liberalism in danger from a rising authoritarian populist uh, trend on the right. And I think that those concerns are entirely valid. I certainly share them. But I think a lot of the time when this issue is discussed, there is a lack of attention to the fact that there is a kind of parallel authoritarian and illiberal trend on the left. I think it's been getting more attention in the year since I've, I've written about it. But even so, I, I, I think uh, a lot of the time when people talk about the defense of liberal values, we really have to look at the fact that both in the United States and in Europe, for instance, and especially in Europe, we now have a lot of speech regulation on uh, the grounds of preventing hate speech. There have been in some shocking cases, for instance, for instance, in England, where you may have heard of the uh, case of uh, so-called Count Dankula, who's a podcaster, right, yes. or a YouTuber, who was actually prosecuted for what was really essentially a stupid joke. Uh, he apparently taught his girlfriend's dog uh, to um, to do a sort of Nazi salute. It was not right. meant as an endorsement of Nazi ideas. It was actually meant as oh look you know but my girlfriend really loves this dog and I'm going to teach it to do like the most obnoxious thing that it could possibly do so I mean Mm -hmm. really it was based on the assumption I mean the whole the humor was in the uh, you know was, was rooted in the assumption that You know, Nazis are bad, essentially. So, really, I mean, it's you could argue that it's a really tacky joke. Um, You know, it's not really up there with, let's say, you know, Mel Brooks uh, making fun of the Nazis and the producers. Okay, but you know, are we going to say that? Yeah, you know, humor about the Nazis is permissible only if it's at at a really high level of uh, you know brilliance and uh, and creativity and so on. No, I think that would be kind of ridiculous and uh this guy was actually prosecuted for uh hate speech and um he was sentenced to pay a fine i forget the amount and he can afford it because you know he's a guy who apparently has a pretty good revenue on youtube sure on the other hand you know if you think about it uh somebody who doesn't have a lot of money oh, for them uh, this could really be a very significant deterrent. There have been other cases, um, also in England, uh, where people have been uh, visited by the police to talk about you know, possible hate crimes because they shared um, something on the internet that was regarded as offensive to transgender people, uh, like a meme that said women don't have penises and uh, you know this is kind of insane This is if if you think about what message are we conveying about what a liberal society is because you know if this is uh, the modern liberal society uh, I I can understand a lot of people saying well you know what it's actually not free and um, it's not diverse it's not uh, intellectually pluralist so uh, I I think that the speech uh, issues are are certainly one thing. Now, in the United States, thankfully, we have the First Amendment, which really makes it <clears throat> impossible to have these types of prosecutions. But, you know, if we look at the backlash that people have received in the social media, if we look at uh, you know, threats to people's careers, uh, mm-hmm. for, uh, supposedly unacceptable speech, I think we definitely have good cause to be concerned. And, you know, right. it, it gets complicated because when, when people talk about Twitter mobs, uh, somebody always responds, well, people who want to criticize certain ideas, you know, what about their freedom of speech? And, you know, you can't really tell them not to criticize something that they consider to be bigoted. And sure thing, it, it it does get complicated. But I think when you get situations where people's livelihood is threatened, you know, where people's um, employers are contacted to, you know, inform them that one of their employees is, you know, supposedly expressing bigoted ideas on the social media. And it really can be about nothing more than a disagreement. So I think that there really are, even in the United States, I think there is an um, actual cause to be concerned about Um, Free speech in some of these contexts. It may not necessarily be a First Amendment issue because the First Amendment does only apply to the government. But at the same time, I think that it is important to have strong cultural values favoring free speech. Right. Because I think that without those values, yeah, you know, the the First Amendment may technically be respected, but you don't really have a free society, you know, unless you um, have values that protect speech. I mean, I think we can all agree that, you know, for instance, when somebody could be fired from their job for coming out as gay, you know, or for expressing, you know, an opinion favorable to gay rights. Uh, I think we can all agree that that was repressive, you know, even if the government wasn't involved, that that was a real, you know, restriction on right. human free human rights. But, you know, we really do have to consider, you know, what sort of situation do we have today where, for instance, uh, you know, somebody's employment may be threatened because they don't agree with uh, same sex marriage. You know, I think uh, most of us, w- we believe that, you know, it, it is definitely a good thing that we have um, equal marriage rights, that this is, you know, this represents very real progress. But at the same time, I think we do have to understand that in a free and diverse society, you know, people will have different values based on religion, based on culture. I think we certainly have every right to try to persuade them that they're wrong, you know, but right. uh, but when you do create a situation where people can be fired over this, I think this raises very real questions of um, you know what does this really mean for for freedom as a cultural value and you know a lot of the time it's not even that clear cut. I mean, people have been accused of homophobia for uh, things that are you know not nearly as clear as let's say saying you know I really don't think gay marriage should be legal. Mm-hmm. I mean, people have been there was a uh, another situation that I wrote about for the Forward in which a Uh, an adult film star was uh, really kind of driven to suicide. By social media harassment, uh, because she expressed a concern about uh, performing with um, male adult actors right. who had done the same sex scenes because she had concerns about screening for HIV. Mm-hmm. And this was, this position was um, denounced as being homophobic. She was, uh, she, she got some really horrible abuse and uh, she eventually committed suicide. Well, we don't know for a fact whether. The that was related to this harassment that she got, but you know I, I do think it's uh, it's interesting that most of the time when people talk about you know when the mainstream media, for instance, talk about internet harassment, uh, we uh, hear a great deal about women who are harassed by you know misogynist trolls <laughs> right. uh, that seems to be the kind of uh you know and, and it's interesting because if every study that you look at actually shows that generally speaking you know except for a small subset where you know young women tend to be sexually harassed more than you know more than young men which you know unfortunately is not surprising but other than that you know other than that one Fairly narrow category of, I think, like women under 25, um, and specifically sexual harassment. Men really get like every other type of harassment men tend to get more of. You know, Mm -hmm. men get more death threats. I mean, there's this idea, which is really bizarre, you know, that women, uh, you know, a woman can uh, really cannot go on the internet uh, without being, you know, bombarded with, you know, obscene photos and being. And, you know, bombarded with rape threats and death threats. And you know again, you know, you look at actual surveys, you look at actual studies. And generally speaking, it's men who get more death threats, even with something like uh, revenge porn, where, where people get, you know, explicit photos of themselves or videos uh, getting posted online without their consent, mm-hmm. um, you actually have slightly more men reporting that this happened to them. Right. So, you know, there is this really like, serious, serious misconception. But the other thing that really interests me is that in this whole conversation about internet harassment, which has been the subject of... Hearings at the United Nations, uh, hearings in Congress, uh, there's a pending legislation. One type of harassment that gets completely ignored is the sort of call out culture, um, you know, harassment by. Um, denouncing somebody as a bigot denouncing somebody as a you know transphobe mm-hmm. a homophobe uh joss whedon uh, at one point got kind of driven off uh, twitter when um he posted this sort of lighthearted joke uh where somebody was uh, i think he was talking about like stupid questions that he gets about how to write a strong female character and he he, he wrote this uh, i mean the the the, the point uh, the point that he was trying to make basically is that you know you you just basically take a strong character that happens to be female, right? Mm-hmm. And he said something like, you know, well, you know, she must be strong and compassionate and not have a penis and balls, you know, or something like
0: that. So the transphobia.
1: Immediately, like, he was mobbed by people who were saying things like, you know, you should get your ass kicked, you know, you should get your teeth bashed in, Uh because, you know, I have a penis and balls and I am as much of a woman as, you know, anybody else, and... It was just this crazy scene where he, I think for today, like he was getting a deluge of hate messages. And I think shortly after, oh, and then I think he, he also got kind of caught up in another, um, a situation where people claimed that there was a rape joke in, um, I think it was the Age of Ultron, uh, uh-huh. where, where there was a joke about, you know, the, the, uh, the droit de seigneur, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the feudal lord's right to, you know, sleep with the bride on on her wedding night. And there was a joke about that in the movie, and that was deemed to be a rape joke. And then of course people also kind of, you know, remembered the other issue where they said, Oh, you know, and you remember when Joss Whedon also made this incredibly transphobic joke about, you know, writing female characters. He was again, he was bashed for like a couple of days. Uh, Or more. And eventually he decided to leave Twitter. Now, he did sort of say, well, you know, no, nobody drove me off Twitter. I just, you know, it's consuming too much of my time. But when you have the situation where somebody gets, uh, you know, really does get bombarded with incredibly nasty stuff, including physical threats, which are really I mean, no one takes these. Twitter threats seriously for the most part, but even so, I mean, I'm sure it's pretty unpleasant to, Mm -hmm. you know, have a lot of people tell you that you should, you know, die in a gruesome way. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, and it's it's interesting that uh, somehow this type of harassment uh, does not get any attention at all in discussions of harassment on the internet. And there have actually been, like, there have been uh, at least in addition to the suicide that I mentioned of the adult film star, there was also a case in which a young woman who was an RF fandom artist attempted suicide when she was denounced as um yeah, bigoted because like supposedly some of her art was quote-unquote problematic mm-hmm. uh like supposedly uh this was in the steven universe fandom which i know nothing about um, <laughs> nothing I do nothing is safe so yeah but uh apparently like there was a character that she drew who is uh, fat on the show and apparently she drew this character as thinner than she is on the show and this was considered to be like fat phobic and th- there was other stuff like that it was just incredibly stupid stuff but apparently there was like the, the, this young woman i uh, had a tumblr blog and there were like you know dozens of other tumblr accounts uh, that were essentially like policing her full time and who like kept uh, you know, looking for problematic things to quote unquote call out in her work, mm-hmm. and eventually this just got so depressing to her that she uh, this is an 18 year old, uh, you know, w- w- a young woman who is like almost a teenager really, and uh, who eventually did attempt suicide and, and ended up in a hospital, victims of a suicide attempt. So there have been, I mean, the, the, there are several known cases of either suicides or attempted suicides over this uh, sort of call out culture type of harassment mm-hmm. and yet you know in all of these discussions of internet harassment we hear nothing about this whatsoever so yeah. i just find that really interesting
0: good that's a good introduction there we see that people jump to judgment really quickly they're not so charitable with their interpretations and it's almost as if they're looking to identify all of these terrible things by just going from zero to 60 so fast oh, absolutely. right they're yeah. They're not really being fair to their opponents or even having a discussion, but rather they're the enemy, there's the vitriol, as you mentioned, the nastiness, rather than actually trying to have a conversation or just... Ignoring it, right? Uh, Right. they, They get so offended, they feel that it's their moral obligation or duty to respond with backlash. And often it's that they want fairness, they want justice, they say they want to be treated with respect, but they're so disrespectful and intolerant toward others that I see as a big problem.
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely.
0: It's also interesting. On the Stoic view, it's not something to be offended. We might hear a remark we don't like or come across a person who presents us with some sort of difficulty, but we can work to avoid that and not let others drag us down and bring us to a state of anger or rage in which we really compromise our moral character and, and treat others poorly.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think that interaction on the internet can be sort of complicated because you don't, uh, you know, see people face to face, you don't hear the tone of voice, you know, you don't uh, often, I mean, I've had experiences where somebody totally missed the fact that I was being sarcastic about something. And, uh, you know, somebody took offense. Um I had an experience just the other day where somebody made a comment Uh, in a tweet, like responding to something I said, that I thought, uh, you know, sounded like a personal insult that was erected at me. And I was kind of taken aback. But you know, instead of jumping down this person's throat, I just said, you know, I'm sorry, like, could you clarify this? You, is this like, <laughs> is this directed to me? And he said, oh, no, 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 I was just making a theoretical point about it. It was something about, no. you know, people being mean-spirited and so on. And no, apparently it was not directed at me at all. It was just sort of a general point that was in response to a tweet of mine. So, you know, yeah, and I think really if more people did that, if more, if more people didn't immediately jump to the least charitable conclusion, mm-hmm. um, I think that that would be that would certainly improve the internet experience for all of us. And you know, I'm seeing a lot of people, uh, you know, in this because uh, right right now we have the sort of the social justice community, and we also have the sort of anti uh, you know anti SJW mm-hmm. you know the anti social justice warrior um, uh, kind of a corner of Twitter. And it it's uh, kind of funny that a lot of the time the same people who will. Uh, you you know, gleefully discuss how easily triggered, you know, the social justice people are. A lot of the time they show the exact same tendencies. Like when somebody says something that they find offensive, or, you know, somebody criticizes, you know, their favorite podcaster or whatever, you know, suddenly they will be you know, extremely thin-skinned and extremely, uh, you know, willing to jump down people's throat. So I think whatever community you belong to, and I think people kind of invariably sort themselves into, you know, groups and kind of tribes, whether it's on Twitter or any place else. And, you know, that's fine. I mean, people have their social circle uh, and, uh, you know, people have their circle of friends. But I think you really have to watch out for... Kind of knee jerk uh, tribalism. And, you know, you don't always assume that somebody who is in your mm-hmm. camp is right about everything. And, you know, you don't uh, jump on somebody for saying something supposedly offensive without. You know, making some kind of effort to find out, you know, whether you're misunderstanding them, whether you're kind of making it out out of a molehill. And, you know, I mean, we're all human. We're all uh, imperfect. But I think we certainly could uh, do a better job of interacting on Twitter than we're doing now. Because, I mean, I, I have been seeing a lot of people recently saying that it's just you know getting too much for them and uh i mean a number of people have have been leaving because they just find the atmosphere too hostile which is a shame because of course obviously the more you know good people leave (laughs) the the worse the uh, the climate the crops so it's kind of a you know it's kind of a
0: uh, vicious circle right And there's a call for moderation, as that's a central virtue in Stoic discussion that, well, if we have too much social media, of course, they weren't talking about social media in ancient times, but too much of anything can be really bad. So we can question technology, how are we to use it? How are we to do it well? That if we use it in a good manner, then it could enhance our lives. But if we use it in a poor manner, of course, it can really drag us down as people can be harmed by that.
1: Right. Part of the problem is that I think we're really just still learning our way around the social media. I mean, we do have this remarkable situation today where, you know, we can have a conversation with people who are thousands of miles away. We can uh, have a circle of friends that includes, Mm -hmm. you know, people from Australia and, you know, from, uh, I don't know, from all over the world, really. And there is this interaction where it feels very very intimate. It feels very personal. It feels like our sort of little village. But at the same time, it includes people with extremely different experiences with extremely different, uh, you know, mental habits and so on. And, uh, you know, another thing that that I think is kind of difficult for people to get used to, I think, is that, you know, in the past, when you interacted with people, a lot of the time, you didn't know anything about their politics, like, you know, you might a lot, you know, people generally kind of even tended to avoid political conversations at work, for instance, because it tends to be polarizing, you know, unless you know that the person is on the same page as you are. And, you know, it's not just politics in the electoral sense, it's opinions about all sorts of, you know, divisive social and political issues. And, you know, you might know somebody for a while, you might have people in your own family, and you know, have no idea what they think about, let's say, abortion, or, you know, what they think about, I don't know, the war on drugs, or you know illegal immigration today a lot of time you know people express those opinions on facebook or on twitter and then you know people get upset people uh, you know you have bull within the same family you know within close family circles not talking to each other because it's like oh my god you know my uncle posted this really horrible <laughs> thing on on facebook and that to be related to him <laughs> because mm. i think in a way we kind of know too much about each other Maybe big, you know, these days, because you know, we all kind of live in the social media fistbowl. What you put into that fistbowl really is entirely up to you. You know, you don't have to talk about politics, necessarily. You don't have to chronicle all the details of your personal life, as some people do. But, you know, if you do that, it's probably going to create some problem. So I think we're still getting used to that. I don't really, I mean, there is this very apocalyptic view of, you know, social media platforms (laughs) and, you know, like, this is, uh, you know, welcome to hell, you know, basically, mm-hmm. like, we're all uh, caught in this, you know, inferno we're all making and we'll never get out. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that there's always been a, a tendency to kind of see doom in, you know, new ways of interaction. Uh, there have been a lot of changes that have transformed um, the society in really radical ways. I'm not right, sure... Right you know, Facebook is necessarily more radical than, I don't know, the front press. <laughs> you know, other things that have happened in history. So, I mean, I think certainly the exchange of uh, information today happens much faster than it used to in the past. On the other hand, you know, you read um, today about virtue-signaling mobs that got whipped up by the tabloids in the 1930s. I mean, it didn't take quite as little time. I mean, obviously, like, there had to be a certain amount of time that had to elapse before a story could run mm-hmm. in a newspaper. On the other hand, you know, you usually mm-hmm. have like two or three editions a day. So there, there were, you know, there were sort of like social media updates, you could say. I don't know that it was really all that different in essence. Uh, I guess you could argue that sometimes, you know, the speed of information qualitatively changes things. But I don't know. I'm 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 not so sure. I mean I think that uh to paraphrase Shakespeare, the fault lies not in our social media but in ourselves.
0: The <laughs> fake fake quote there. Uh, yeah, yeah. How are we going to use the social media and how can we learn to communicate well is an interesting question. And now we can realize as the Stoics talk about, well, we're a global community of people. We have a lot of things in common with one another, and maybe more things in common than are different and we can Question on how to get along with others, how to exist in a world where there are people who disagree with us on matters that we find important. How can we be civil towards others? How can we better understand people if we're going to simply shout people down, no platform them, and just cast off all who disagree as gender traitors or sexist or misogynist or whatever? That's not going to be helpful. I mean, we could avoid certain people as there are some legitimate cases, and many to be sure, of people who are quite disreputable but
1: absolutely absolutely yeah and i think even more perniciously a lot of the time the labeling uh and the attacks are not even based on ideas or opinion just seems so ubiquitous in in uh the last i would say like two or three years putting somebody down by uh you know calling them a white male or you know an old white male you know you're an old (laughs) white guy or you know you're a white lady. and Oh, yeah, like, so the white lady is going to, the old white lady is going to tell me about, you know, these issues of interest to black people, you know, and it really become this uh, extremely common means of dismissing people. And so not just in social media conversations, but in the professional media as well. I mean, the, the left of center media in the last several years, I think, have come to be really dominated by people who embrace this sort of, the intersectional social justice viewpoint. And uh, one of its characteristics, and this really goes back to what I was talking about before, about the sort of illiberal leftism, is classifying people by race, gender, religion, disability, uh, sexual orientation, and other characteristics, rather than, you know, by their you know qualities or right. opinions or whatever. This is like, and, and you know, it's interesting because uh, the there's been a lot of discussion about identity politics. And I, I think a lot of the time people who purport to defend identity politics really employ this extremely broad definition uh, that I think is kind of meaningless, uh, where they say, oh, so you're against identity politics, so, you know, that means, for instance, that we shouldn't talk about racism in uh, in law enforcement because that's, like, specific to, to African Americans mm-hmm. primarily. And, you know, and this is so because that's an identity related issue, you know we shouldn't talk about it, or if there's a like type of injustice that affects primarily women, uh, so we shouldn't talk about it because that's identity politics. I don't think anyone has ever said that any that any issue that is unique or particular or you know primary to a specific group is necessarily identity politics. I mean, I don't think anyone would say that the fight against segregation. In the 1950s and 1960s, was about identity politics because you know it affected primarily black people. Uh, I think the uh, the real issue is not whether you know whether the issues you address are more specific to some groups than to others, but whether you classify people by their identity. I think that is primarily what people mean by identity mm-hmm. politics. Martin Luther King. Had a lot of criticism of uh, you know the people that he called the white moderates, who were basically like people who took the view that oh well you know of course we are in favor of racial justice, but you really shouldn't be quite so pushy about it, and like you know we really should allow more time for change to happen. He had a lot of criticism of those people, you know quite rightly, uh, you know essentially saying that look you know we have people who are being affected by these injustices today, you know you you're really not helping by taking this position. But I don't recall Martin Luther King ever saying, oh, well, you know, you're white, so, like, shut up about that, (laughs) you know, like, you're...
0: Right, right. Yeah, you don't, they'll say, you don't know what it's like, you can't have a voice on this. And okay, well, maybe I don't know what it's like, but can I be an ally? Can you tell me more information? You know, can we work together? Right?
1: Obviously, you know, no white person uh, living in the 1950s had the experience of, you know, having to pee on the side of the road, because no bathroom would allow you to go in, uh, you know, because you couldn't find a bathroom. Because, uh, you know, obviously, not only were the facilities segregated, but a lot of, the time like a gas station would only have facilities for white. So, you know, you, you, certainly you didn't have the experience. You didn't have the experience of having to tell your kids that, oh, you know, we can't go to Disneyland today because, you know, this is a day when they don't admit any colored people. But I would think that uh, what people like Martin Luther King relied on is that anyone has the ability to understand that and you know the the ability to you know listen to somebody who tells you about that experience and you don't really need to have had it yourself to understand Mm -hmm. that it's really horrible you know like imagine what it would be like if you had to take your kids kids all the way to disneyland and when you got there you were told that you can't go in because of the color of your skin. I mean, you don't really need to experience that firsthand or to be in a position to experience that. To understand that this is not the way a decent society should treat its people, and I think that was the message that that Martin Luther King relied on. It mm. was uh, it was certainly not, you know, well, just you know, shut up and uh, <laughs> and yeah, and uh, you know, don't uh, you know, don't presume to be a part of the conversation. So I think that that's uh, that's right. the real difference. The, the difference is not, uh, you know, whether you raise issues that are specific to people of a certain identity but it's whether you judge people by um, by that identity and uh, you know that that I think is the, the real problem and of course you know the the other thing is that the uh, you know a lot of the issues that are being discussed today uh, a lot of the issues that are related to sort of social justice broadly defined are issues where we don't necessarily have all the answers you know they're really not, you know, settled issue. I mean, I think with segregation for instance, it was really I mean, all the basically all that needed to be done is for the real kind of the the, the reality of segregation to be conveyed and brought to, you know, American society at large. And I think, you know, there was uh, massive support for the civil rights movement. I mean, eventually it kind of got more complicated because when Martin Luther King spoke out against the war in Vietnam and, you know, he started addressing some of the, you know, issues related to poverty and, you know, it kind of got more complicated. People started calling him a communist. And at one point his, uh, his poll numbers actually did, you know, before he was assassinated, his poll numbers did decline dramatically. But initially there was really very, very widespread support for um, the movement against segregation. And I think, you know, once people saw on their TV screens, you know, what was happening with the, uh, the peaceful demonstrators being, uh, you know, being essentially, you know, assaulted with dogs and water hoses. So I think in in that case, there, there really was a pretty simple answer, which was to, you know, abolish the, the system of, of legal segregation in, in that sense. I mean, obviously, there were more complicated issues when it came to, um, you know, schools that were de facto segregated because of residential right. patterns. And when, when you started dealing with issues like, you know, children being bused to other neighborhoods, where you know, it, it, I, I'm not going to say that that was all, you know, extremely simple and, you know, easily solved. Obviously, there were there were some very contentious and complicated issues. Uh, But I think today, you know, a lot of the issues we're talking about issues related to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Me Too movement and uh, and sexual assault. I mean, there are legitimate arguments. I mean, nobody is for sexual assault, but there are actual arguments, first of all, about, you know, what constitutes sexual assault in this day and age. You know, there are a lot of discussions of, you know, what is consent? Uh, you know, things that we once. Thought were really simple, you know, and I think certainly we can agree that, you know, in in past generations, mm-hmm. a lot of the time, you know, there were things that were kind of taken for granted that, you know, thankfully we don't take for granted anymore. Female office workers were kind of treated as, you know, sort of decorative sex objects, where, you know, and I think we can again, we can all be glad that that is no longer the case, no, for the most part, and you know, we mm-hmm. no longer believe that a powerful Hollywood producer has the right to treat, you know, young female actresses as uh, sort of his personal harem. I think that these are all, you know, issues that we can agree on. But, you know, at the same time, you know, there is such a thing as consensual Sexual interaction in the workplace, right. whether it consists of you know sexual banter and sexual humor, which a lot of people men and women find to be enjoyable, a lot of feminists say you know it really has no place on the office so I mean I think there are real and you know, valid disagreements on that. When we look at issues like um, you know the rights of transgender people, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think most of us, again, most decent people, will agree that you know it is a good thing that we have more recognition and more acceptance of
0: right.
1: you know the, the the rights of transgender people as um, you know equal to anyone else. At the same time, you know, there are uh, there are very very complicated issues uh, surrounding uh, gender transition for young children. You know, where we have Issues where, you know, we have cases where kids who are not old enough to drink, who, you know, who are not old enough to get married, who are not old enough to get Mm. really any kind of major medical procedure without parental consent. There is a lot of pressure on the parents to allow them to, uh, you know, get hormones that, uh, to to get puberty blockers, to get, uh, you know, hormone treatments. There appears to be a lot of evidence that, you know, many of those kids, Mm. uh, many kids who identify as transgender at one point, um, you know, during early adolescence, uh, eventually uh, changed their mind about it and eventually realized that, you know, what they really are is gay. I mean, that's primarily you know, what it is, apparently. A lot of this sort of confusion about gender dysphoria actually has to do with gay kids who, you know, because they are somewhat mm-hmm. different from their same-sex peers, generally, they start to think, you know, in this climate when there is a lot of supportiveness right now for, uh, you know, being transgender in certain school settings and certain, you know, social, you know, progressive social circles. So, you know, I think that's a legitimate question. I, I think, you know, right. there are a lot of feminists who, you know, have, um, uh, who believe that, uh, you know, women are being uh, sort of in many ways kind of endangered, for instance, by, uh, you know, what happens when somebody who is, uh, you know, biologically male is allowed into a women's jail, mm-hmm. you know, when they when they're an inmate. Or, you know, into a women's homeless shelter. There are these are yeah. these are valid issues. I mean these Things that we can not just say, oh, well, you know, we're not going to talk about this because it's bigoted against transgender people. You know, what happens when you have, no trans people in women's sports, you know, who are, you know, who have the advantage of having this sort of biologically male body with all the, you know, the... So, Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, I think that there are valid issues. You can't really just say, oh, you know, because this is, you know, this debate is is inherently bigoted and so we're not going to have and anyone who even brings up those issues needs to be deplatformed. I mean, you know, are there feminists who have used incredibly hateful language toward transgender people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think there's a subset of radical feminists who really kind of hate anyone who is uh-huh. biologically male, you know, whether they're, you know, yeah, cisgender or trial, yeah, you know, they're, whether the issue, they're cisgender but. males or, you know, biological males who uh, identify as women. And, you know, I, I think that there is a kind of subset of radical feminism that's incredibly paranoid about this and they see this as some sort of, you know, evil, you know, infiltration of by males. I mean, it's crazy, you know, it, yeah. And, you know, so, so I think there is this, uh, Subset that is, a, mm-hmm. that really is kind of incredibly hateful and bigoted. Absolutely. But you also have people who really are raising legitimate and valid issues, and I think to try to shut them up, as you know, has often happened. Um, my my last column in um, uh, Newsday, where I where I write a weekly column, this is the Long Island uh, local paper, uh, was about a study by Lisa Lipman, uh who is a Brown University researcher. Um, and this is a study of kids with gender dysphoria, kids uh, primarily girls who all of a sudden, you know, with a really no advanced sort of signs of any kind of dissatisfaction with their gender, like suddenly after being exposed to kind of very pro-transgender messages on the social media, maybe you know, in their circle of friends uh, suddenly they decide that they're transgender and they start demanding you know, to change their pronouns change their name and a lot of the time they insist on medical treatments that can be really quite hazardous and those effects we don't really yet fully understand and You know, there have been cases where later on, when somebody who's Mm -hmm. had those treatments uh, changes their mind and kind of detransitions, sometimes their fertility is irreparably damaged. Sometimes, you know, they've had a change of voice. You know, sometimes they, you know, they have to, like the the, the young women have to kind of deal with really, you know, severe facial hair for the Mm -hmm. rest of their lives. So, you you know, these are not trifling things. These are things that actually have consequences. And so, yeah, so, I mean, I think that these are real issues. And and, right. and I think, again, this goes to what I was talking about before, the sort of the illiberal leftism that says, no, you know, you cannot talk about these issues because it makes certain people feel, you know, unsafe. And we have this conflation of words and violence where we have these, uh, where we, we have this whole kind of concept of verbal violence, by which, you know, what it means is not violent threats, because I think most of us would recognize that, yeah. of course, you know, if you threaten to kill somebody, I mean, that is an actual crime. I mean, there is a crime of making terroristic threats. So, you know, we're not saying that there is no such thing as, you know, violent verbal behavior. But at the same time, you know, what the social justice types are really saying is that if you express a supposedly hurtful opinion about uh, transgender issues, you have committed uh, discursive violence. And, you know, if you've published a paper we express those ideas, you know, you're gonna have people clamoring for it to be taken down. It's causing harm to transgender people. So yeah, I mean, I think that it's uh, very, very misguided. And it's, uh, you know, and it's very difficult to make the argument that we should be defending, you know, liberal values and enlightenment values against the sort of right wing, you know, Trumpian populism, when within the liberal establishment, we have these deeply, deeply, deeply illiberal trends. That really threaten uh, kind of enlightenment values based liberalism from within, and I mean that we didn't even get to the part about the sort of overt attack suddenly enlightenment, uh-huh. which is as a whole. I mean, I, we yeah. could talk about that. If, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, because there's also the this, and again, none of this is is entirely new. This has been going on for some time, right. but you know, there there is this uh, increased uh, tendency in in the last several years of denouncing the Enlightenment as you know sexist, racist, you know imperialist. Etc. You know, and I think um, you know no one would dispute that. Of course, you know people who lived in the 18th century had a lot. You know, did not have modern ideas about race and gender. You know, most of them did not regard you know women as equals. Although there actually was in the, you know if you look at the actual record of the Enlightenment, you know this is when you get you know Mary Wollstonecraft who is really the first person in in the West pretty much to formulate a kind of overtly feminist ideas and to actually say that, yeah, you know, women should have the same rights as men. For Olympe de Gouges in France, you know, making, uh, making the case for the rights of the uh, female citizen during the French Revolution. These are all people who are coming out of the Enlightenment tradition. There were also, this is when, you know, during the Enlightenment, yes, of course, you know, you can find really racist passages in Kant, you know, you can find uh, racist passages in Voltaire, but at the same time, the Enlightenment is when you start finding find people People starting to make the case mm-hmm. for for abolition of slavery. The, this argument that it, the, there is an argument that the Enlightenment kind of made things worse by spearheading scientific racism. And yeah, I mean, there is a certain subset of Enlightenment era thought mm-hmm. that uh, really began this kind of scientific argument for, you know, the, the, the races being kind of distinct species and, and right. so on and so forth. But, you know, I don't think it's the Enlightenment itself that is the place. I, I mean, the, the, the thing about the Enlightenment is that this was really the rise of scientific thought, you know, as such. So, of course, you know, the, the racist prejudices that already existed sometimes started getting couched in scientific terms because people were kind of trying to find scientific frameworks for everything. And, you know, that included... Racial sure. prejudice. That doesn't mean that racial prejudice didn't exist before. Uh, if you look at Othello, for instance, you know, which is written in like 1605, uh, I think, you know, you have uh, a huge amount of, you know, racial prejudice being expressed right there, where, you know, the, clearly, like, uh, most of the characters uh, see Othello as inferior because he's black. And that's just a reality, unfortunately. And the fact that some of this thinking uh got a kind of pseudoscientific veneer during the enlightenment doesn't mean that the enlightenment itself was responsible for the racism i mean if anything i think you you really can uh i mean the enlightenment is also really the origin of a lot of sort of interest in other cultures uh there Mm -hmm. was a huge kind of upsurge of interest at the time in europe in uh, muslim culture in chinese culture and i mean of course, a lot of the, a lot of the, there were a lot of misconceptions about both, and there was a certain amount of like exoticized thinking, but there was also like a genuine interest in in studying the values of other cultures and taking them seriously, and not just you know treating people from other civilizations as these you know unchristian you know heathens whose whose you know only purpose really was to be converted into Christianity. <laughs> so so yeah, I mean I think it's just it, it's a really unfortunate. Caricature of the Enlightenment. Uh, I think the Enlightenment uh, certainly had many different facets, uh, not all of which were benevolent. You know, that is very true. I mean, uh, I mean, you can find a lot of different stray intellectual strands during the Enlightenment, but that doesn't really invalidate the fact that this is also when you have the origins of, uh, you know, the belief in intellectual freedom, the belief in human equality, the belief in, uh, you know, human, you know, individual human dignity. So, just seems to me that the, the attacks on the Enlightenment are uh, tremendously misguided, you know. And I think that if you're if you're going to say that you know we need to defend liberal values against the sort of onslaught on the far right, which represents some incredibly ugly ideologies, it's really kind of not very wise. At this time, when these values are already under threat to say, like, oh, and by the way, those values that we're all supposed to defend, they're really rooted in, you know, racist, sexist, unrealistic uh, you know, thinking that is actually kind of profoundly evil. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, that that, that is just uh, really, really unwise.
0: Good. So we should have an additive humility and think, well, maybe we don't have all the answers or the solutions, right. or maybe our right. conceptualization of these issues is off, and that the issues are very complex, that just a simple solution, a simple answer isn't going to be the cure-all here, and that people will propose some radical economic solutions, right. or right. we we need to say, oh, all these people need to be out of power, and they just need to be replaced with women because that's equality. Like, Is, is that really the way to go forward, if we can give people Opportunities if we can go in all sorts of different directions, and even then, okay, well, people have the freedom to apply for a certain job, but it doesn't mean they're interested. I right. mean, they're going to take it. But right. you, you right. question these things, you propose some of these solutions, and you've become the enemy, right? You, Stoics call us to question the wisdom of the crowds, and if you question things like the gender wage gap, rape culture, antifa Black Lives Matter, then you're just public enemy here. Huh?
1: Yeah, and yeah. Let me- just give you another example that I think is interesting. Like one um, area where I've seen people defend identity politics is, you know, you just mentioned Black Lives Matter. So I'll comment on that. I, I've seen a number of people, and not just on the left. I've seen sort of the, the, there's a subset of libertarians that is uh, quite sympathetic to sort of social justice uh, concerns. And you know, and again, you know, I, I'm kind of interrupting myself. You know, when you define it as when you define something as social justice, well, you know, who wants to be against it right i mean it's kind of
0: people see it as this great thing right
1: yeah and i mean people will say like oh well what do you mean like you're you you know you you, you're against social the social justice does that mean that you're for social injustice yeah well you know i'm also (laughs) against the you know democratic people's republic of korea that doesn't I'm against democracy, you know. But yeah, that's, uh, so yeah, so so I've, I've seen the argument that, well, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, criticizing identity politics, you know, Black Lives Matter is this incredibly important movement, which, uh, you know, has brought attention to, uh, you know, the very real issue of the abuse of police authority to police brutality and so on. And, you know, that's a kind of identity-based movement. And, you know, what I would argue is I actually think that most, likely a kind of less explicitly race-oriented movement against police brutality probably would have been more successful. And I don't think that's because, you know, people don't take black lives seriously enough and so on. You know, I, I really don't think that that's true of most people. But, you know, the thing is that I mean yes on the one hand there is a lot of evidence that there is fairly widespread kind of racial prejudice when it comes to crime I mean there is a tendency to perceive black male, young black males in particular as uh, you know more criminal and I mean you know the, some of that is associated with you know the demographic fact that people in that group really are more likely to commit crimes on the other hand there is also no question that they are treated differently you know they're more likely mm-hmm. to be treated as suspect you know even when they they're, they're likely to be profiled in all sorts of uh, whether it's being stopped in the street and, you know, being randomly searched and, you know, things like stop and frisk, which New York used to have before it got suspended on grounds of racial profiling, uh, whether it's uh, getting longer sentences for the same crimes. So there, there is a lot of that going on. And I think that's a very real concern. On the other hand, I think when it comes to like police brutality per se and to police shootings, in spite of the fact that there has been a huge amount of attention, drawn to a number of incidents in which uh, unarmed black men were shot and killed by the police. When you look at the actual studies, there, it actually doesn't seem to be the case that, you know, if, if you look at black people as a proportion of all police interactions, it actually doesn't seem to be the case that they're more likely than white people to be shot. During those interactions, it's complicated because, it's, yeah, I mean, the, the, it's disproportionate in relation to the population. But if you look at, again, like the percentage of police interactions, uh, there are some studies that actually show that, again, like if you look at the uh, the overall number of suspects, uh, like people who get arrested, black people may actually be slightly less likely, like black suspects than white white suspects to be shot. They're more likely to uh, to experience other kinds of violence, you know, like being Front to the ground, you know, being pushed against the wall. So yeah, I mean, the, the the bias certainly does exist, but not necessarily in in the area of shootings per se. And there have been a number of really outrageous incidents. Involving uh, white people who were shot by the police, you know, due to some sort of mistake, right. you know, due to the police officer just overreacting to a perceived threat. So, you know, this is definitely not something that is solely a racial issue, and I think to cast it as such uh, is really kind of needlessly polarizing. But it also, I think, kind of leaves out a number of people who who would share those concerns. You know, if it wasn't defined solely in racial terms. I mean, you know, what uh, if you're going to make the case that you know police procedures in America tend to be designed in such a way that they often lead to unnecessary shootings? Do you think it's more productive to say, well, and this only happens to black people, or do you think it's more productive to say, you know, and this could happen to anyone, including you? I mean, there have been certainly it's less likely, but there have been cases of you know middle class white people who get shot because you know they didn't precisely obey a police instruction in a, a really tense situation. Black Lives Matter is an organization that has all sorts of, like, you know, political positions right. that may not even necessarily, you know, have to do with police brutality. I mean, their platform has a, you know, pro-Palestinian... Uh,
0: right. There's also talk of reparations as well, of economic... You know, Palestinian liberation uh, plank.
1: So, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that you can certainly, you know, have a lot of issues with specific things about the platform and the viewpoints of Black Lives Matter. It's not, you know, either you're a supporter of Black Lives Matter or you're, yeah. uh, I mean, because I actually have people being accused of racism merely for saying, well, you know, I'm not really a great fan of Black Lives Matter. And oh, well, then obviously, you you think that Black Lives don't matter. Well, you know. No.
0: Yeah, that's ridiculous. It's questioning a movement and the tactics that they use not individuals not people not an identity
1: right right of course of course and and i think you know it's kind of like saying that if you question feminism uh, in its modern form you know you're anti-woman mm-hmm. and you know, that's of course we hear that a lot i mean i've heard that a lot i mean you're like you're if you're a guy that makes you a misogynist If a woman that makes you
0: a self-hating female internalized misogyny yeah
1: internalized misogyny. Right, right. I've heard that one a lot. So yeah, but uh, I mean, we we could probably do a whole another hour about just feminism. So
0: (laughs) Sure. And you, you talk about identity politics hurting. And it's interesting. Many have theorized that the rise of identity politics and social justice circles led to the election of Trump. Surely not the only factor, but something many commentators have pointed as leading to that victory.
1: Right, right. And I think, uh, you know, I I think that we don't know to what extent that that is true. It's kind of, it's something that's hard to measure. I believe that there have been actually some polls showing that there's a correlation between, you know, people being concerned with so-called political correctness and voting for Trump. I mean, I personally interviewed, at one point I did a story for a foreign policy magazine about uh, women and populist movements. And as part of that, I interviewed uh, seven or eight women who had voted for Trump. It was interesting that I would say it specifically had concerns that I would describe as, you know, concerns with identity politics and so-called political correctness. One of them was a woman whose son had been accused of mm. sexual assault and was eventually cleared. But, you know, not before a really protracted and uh, kind of agonizing, uh, you know, Title IX, uh, you know, kind of kangaroo court uh, on a college campus. And she was very concerned about the situation with Title IX. You know, it's kind of interesting that like, this is one area in which, you know, as much as I loathe the, the Trump administration, I actually think that what Betsy DeVos has done in on you know, Title IX is a good thing. I mean, this is something that liberals should be supportive mm-hmm. of. You know, this is more, uh, you know, this is a kind of pro-rights of defendants, and it's really disparating mm-hmm. to see uh, to see liberals uh, being kind of up in arms about it. This is a very very clear example of uh, kind of Politics in action, where because it's supposed to be about uh, you know women's rights, the, you know, even though actually there have been cases of women who um, have been accused and kind of railroaded um, under um, under Title Nine. But yeah, it, it's uh, it's just this incredible thing where you know the, the, we have these uh, campus disciplinary proceedings mm-hmm. that really not only can end your college career but can pretty much label you a criminal, uh, label you a rapist more. Wow with none of the protections that you have in criminal court where really the duck the duck is Very heavily stacked against you. And, uh, you know, and I think that the, you know, Betsy DeVos really actually does deserve credit for, uh, seeking to change the situation and to make the rules a little more equitable. So, yeah, I think that that is, uh, that is one area. Mm -hmm. I also spoke to a young woman who is a college student. And it's kind of an interesting situation because I was directed to this young woman by her mother who, I know who, who voted for Hillary Clinton and who was really d- completely dismayed that her daughter was going to vote for Trump but you know her daughter basically said uh, like yeah like I'm she, she was incredibly fed up with this sort of politically correct uh, setting on campus and uh, and it's it's funny because she was incredibly you know concerned uh, with uh, maintaining her anonymity and she said you know don't you know not only can you not mention my name you know if people figured out that I voted for Trump like you know my academic career would be over. And she she, she attends a fairly major um, school in New York. You know, she said that one of her issues was that there was this endless kind of drumbeat of you need to acknowledge your white privilege and, you know... And so forth. And she, one thing that she mentioned was that there was a um, class discussion. I forget which class this was, but there was a mention of the, like some survey which showed that the majority of women in Muslim cultures, or in certain Muslim cultures at least, uh, believed that it was okay for a husband to beat his wife if she disobeyed him. And the professor basically, like when when some students in the class kind of expressed dismay over that, the professor essentially took the stand that Well, you know, we really shouldn't be judgmental because it's their culture. And, you know, and she just thought that it was incredibly hypocritical, you know, given how much emphasis there normally was on, uh, you know, on feminism. Uh, Suddenly, when we're talking about a quote unquote marginalized population, uh, you know, suddenly, you know, endorsement of wife beating is really something that we shouldn't be judgmental about.
0: Right. Cultural relativism there. Yeah.
1: Cultural positivism, right? And she just saw this as part of this whole kind of politically correct, uh, you know, situation. So yeah, I think there was also some of her concern. I think was about you know gender-neutral uh, bathrooms on campus. Uh, so I mean, yeah, there was a lot of stuff like that. She was not conservative. You know, she was not you know somebody who had reactionary views. She actually. When I spoke to her, it was right after the so called Muslim ban. And she actually said something like, Well, you know, if I'd known that Trump was going to do this, like, I probably wouldn't have voted for him. And, you know, so I mean, she certainly was not somebody who was generally a supporter of, you know, these types of policies. But it was, so, yeah, as I said, of the, like, mm-hmm. I think I interviewed a total of, like, eight people, or maybe nine people. And I think about, uh, I think three of them had concerns that distinctly had to do with so-called political correctness, uh, where identity politics. And right. uh, there have been other examples that people have given where, uh, you know, where people gave that as their example, as kind of re- as their reason to vote for Trump. There's also been a lot of concern about, you know, with the rise of the alt-right and the sort of the white nationalist far-right, there have been a lot of concerns about people being kind of Pushed toward that by uh, identity politics on the left. And, you know, and again, you sort of get the argument, oh, well, like, so you became a Nazi because uh, somebody said mean things about white people on the internet. That's ridiculous. And, you know, that probably means that you were already kind of predisposed toward (laughs) being a Nazi in the first place. Well, I think that. It's a bit of a character. I don't think it's that simple. I don't think it's as simple as like, oh, well, Sarah Jones said nasty things about white people, so I'm going to go nationalist. But I think you have to remember that, first of all, a lot of the people who get involved in these movements are very young. You know, they're, they're not sophisticated. Yes. You know, they're, they're not very experienced in, you know, political movements and political issues. What happens a lot of the time, and I've actually seen this happen to people, like they get really fed up with a lot of this, you know, this ridiculous, you know, politically like, correct sort of identity politics stuff that they see, especially on the internet. And of course, you know, a lot of young people, you know, they spend a lot of time on the internet. They may also get fed up with things that happen if they're in college. You know, they may get fed up with freshman orientation where, uh, you know, you, you have, you know, inquisition like sessions where it's like, you you know, step up and tell us about forms of privilege that you enjoy. And obviously, you know, if you're privileged, you know, that means that you have to you know, feel guilty about it and you're this evil person who is oppressing women and uh, people of color and so on.
0: Yeah, a lot of anti-male content in that as well.
1: Right, a lot of anti-male, a lot of like anti-white. anti So yeah, I think like, what you have is a number of people who are fed up with that, and they go, maybe like they go on the internet looking for like critiques of social justice, and you have certain, like there is content that I think sometimes serve as, serves unintentionally as a gateway, and especially for instance with YouTube, they, like the way that it's, uh, the, the, the YouTube algorithm works Mm -hmm. is that if you watch you know like you could watch a video that is not even necessarily you know that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the alt-right you know you could watch a sort of moderately centrist video that criticizes certain social justice concepts and then what you're gonna see in your like you know related videos is something that is gonna lead you further and further down and I think that is the way a lot of this happens and I think because a lot of young people and I think this really does have to do with with our educational system, not promoting critical thinking. I think a lot of young people, when they discover, for instance, just to give you an example about feminism, I mean, I've seen young women, I, I've seen like videos that have been made by young women, and who have become these like raging anti-feminists. And they say like, Oh, well, I was always taught, you know, this and that. And then I went online, and I found out that, you know, it's actually not true what they t- told me about the gender gap. It's not true what they told me. About domestic violence. And then once they realize that kind of misled about some of those things, they become incredibly kind of credulous toward anything that criticizes like mainstream feminist concepts. Then, you know, unfortunately, I mean, especially when you're, you you have the sort of zeal of the newly converted. Like mm-hmm. you suddenly you realize that everything you were told, uh, everything you believed until like today uh, turned out to be, well, not necessarily a complete lie, right. maybe, but, you know, really not accurate. Then you can, uh, you know, you are kind of ripe right pickings for recruitment by some pretty extreme people on the other side. Like suddenly, you know, and I've seen some of those young women get pulled into like fairly extreme mm-hmm. ideologies where, you know, suddenly they're like, oh, well, actually it's women who have always been you know, parasites and you know, and like, oh, and actually, well, maybe there's there, there are really good reasons that women shouldn't vote. And I was like, no, no, no. You really don't want to go down that. So I think the same thing happens, I'm sure, with uh, some of the people who get you know, the young people who get recruited into white nationalism. One moment you, uh-huh. you're you questioning affirmative action and, you know, you, you want to learn more about, let's say, you know, discrimination against AIDS in college admissions, in order to you know, made it to to get the right kind of proportions of racial diversity, and then you know, I think I think it's very easy for people, unfortunately, to get pulled into extreme uh, extreme movements, and you know, that doesn't justify. I mean, I'm I'm not excusing anyone who becomes a white nationalist mm-hmm. or, or or you know or i misogynist. I'm certainly not, you know, making excuses for that. But see, but, and I've run into those people. I mean, I've at one point, I wrote a couple of articles that were pretty harshly critical of the alt-right. And I mean, you know, I had to change my settings on Twitter because I was getting uh, about like over 100 like anti-Semitic messages.
0: Yeah, Ben Shapiro is another voice that he got a lot of backlash too. And he's obviously on the right
1: yeah, I didn't get it nearly as bad as Ben Shapiro. I mean, uh, you All know, right. he was like think the the, the ADL uh, actually did a study of the um, people getting anti-Semitic messages from the right. I uh, mean, not from the alt-right, and Ben Shapiro was really was at the top of the list. I mean, I wasn't even in the top ten. So it's funny because I mean, there there is a certain there, there is a vast amount of ignorance out there, like among uh, like people on the kind of the far right. I think there is a segment that is really not willing to even look at. It.
0: Right. But there's some hope going forward in that there are people who are speaking up for a a centrist, a more moderate and more reasonable voice like you and uh, many people on the intellectual dark web. As we've talked about that a little bit, I don't know if you've been named as a member or if you received a special invitation. I'm not sure.
1: (laughs) People see me as sort of intellectual dark web adjacent, <laughs> I guess. Uh, I mean, I've written, I, I wrote it for a Medium, uh, well, for Art Digital, which is this medium magazine that, I, uh, the, that I've that i actually recently joined as a contributing editor. I did a piece that was quite popular about the intellectual dark web. I mean, I, um, I'm concerned about, I mean, I think there is a certain amount of tribalism that you know, exists in the intellectual on the intellectual dark web as well. I mean, I've seen people like defend. You know, there's a certain kind of clubby mentality where it's like, you know, if you attack a member of the intellectual dark web, you know, other IDW people will kind of come to their defense, even if you know they're being attacked for a very good reason. I'm not a huge like fan of clubs and labels, and you know, I think there there are people on the so-called intellectual dark web who I think are very worthwhile. You know, Sam Harris is is one that I would certainly name. Um, for Sina Hoff Summers, I think, is, has been doing some great work.
0: Right, the Weinsteins.
1: The Weinsteins, we have Brent Weinstein and Heather Hang, who I actually interviewed a while back, and I really need to, to to write a feature about them because it's just you know there is so much going on right now. You know, it's like I usually have like ten ideas a week, and if I can do like three of them, you know, that's good. I mean, I think it's a useful concept, maybe, in that I think there is uh, like in the mainstream kind of liberal media and academia today. I think there definitely is a kind of groupthink uh, with, you know, the, the things that I was talking about, like identity politics being kind of the principal framework for approaching a lot of issues with the, you know, the belief that, you know, speech that you know, is perceived as invalidating someone's identity is a form of violence. Uh, the belief that, you know, microaggressions you know, are really, you know, these unintentional verbal slights or perceived slights are a form of oppression. That really speech needs to be very rigorously policed for you know anything that could harm or oppress the quote unquote marginalized. Really, you kind of uh, people are judged on the basis of their place in this hierarchy of oppressions. Uh, so yeah, and I think those ideas are very prevalent in uh, contemporary like media and academic culture, uh, left of center. And I think the intellectual dark web is a kind of counterculture to that. I think the problem is when one when it gets too clubby, when it kind of, you know, develops its own tribalism. And I think, you know, you do get certain people on, uh, you know, in the intellectual dark web who have a kind of like no enemies on the right mindset, you know, where it's like, you know, where they're willing to treat some pretty unsavory people on the right as allies because they're, you know, fellow anti-SJWs. You know, another way in which I think the kind of the social justice kind of speech police is really causing harm to public discourse is that they cheapen. You know, they cheapen words like racism. They cheapen. You know, every anyone can get called a racist for saying that it's okay to wear a sombrero on Halloween. You know. <laughs>
0: Right, the cultural appropriation or that prom dress—that was the recent one. I had an episode on that.
1: Yeah, you can get called a racist for that. You can get called a, I mean, I've been called a rape apologist for you know saying that you don't necessarily need like verbal consent to you know every single act when you're you know engaging in sexual foreplay. You don't actually need to ask. Excuse me, may I touch your right nipple? <laughs> you know, whatever.
0: Right. It, it's it's gotten to the part of like an Onion article in South Park satire it with the whole season with uh, PC principal and signing the consent forms and all of this, the safe space jokes, yeah.
1: Yeah, so yeah, so I mean, you get called a rape apologist for you know, or you know, you can get called a rape apologist for questioning, mm-hmm. you know, for saying that, oh, well, actually, you know, false accusations of rape really do exist and we don't exactly know how common they are, but they're not such a ministerial problem that we don't have to pay any attention to them We and we can just go ahead and assume that everyone's guilty, right? You know, from that standpoint, I think the intellectual dark web can be sort of an overly clubby and kind of defensive uh, thing.
0: Yeah, I even see that in Stoic communities today as yes, you question this and that idea or you're bringing other ideas into Stoicism. I generally just talk about a lot of ideas, but I don't even use the label myself. Well, I gain inspiration from a tradition. I identify with some of the authors. I think they have some good ideas, but I'm not saying, oh, everything is definitely something I'm going with, right? We're drawing from all sorts of traditions and we're revising our ideas as we encounter new people, new ideas, have new experiences.
1: Right. Yeah, of course. Well, and it's the same with, I mean, labels are always kind of problematic. I mean, you know, it's funny that problematic is one of those kind of ruined balls.
0: Yes, yes. Tricky, tricky.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's, yeah, tricky, right? Tricky. Uh, Yeah. You know, you get into the, the question of labels, and I mean, people keep asking me whether I'm a feminist. You know, if you go by the dictionary definition of, you know, somebody who believes in equality of the sexes, somebody who believes that, you know, women and men should be treated as equals and, you know, should be judged uh, by their merit and not their gender. Absolutely, I'm a feminist. I mean, do I believe that, you know, women have been denied equal opportunity in many areas? You know, of
0: course, I I think that's kind of self-evident. What do you what do you mean by that? That's the question.
1: You know, on the other hand, if you want to look at a lot of what goes into the concept of feminism today, I mean, do I believe that America in 2018 is a patriarchy? Uh, no, I don't. You know, I think, I think that there are areas of gender bias that apply to women. There are areas of gender bias that apply to men. I mean, I think that today we should be able to look at both. You know, I, I think that each, uh, each sex has a distinct advantages and disadvantages, some of which may be innate, you know, some of which may be uh, social. I think the important thing is to treat everyone as an individual, which, you know, which again doesn't mean that you can't look at certain patterns that uh, that primarily affect women or primarily affect men. But again, I mean, does that make me a feminist? Does that make me an egalitarian? I honestly have no idea. I think ideas really should be more important than labels. And uh, it, with regard to the intellectual Dark web. I suppose I'm a kind of sympathetic, who is also sometimes a critic. So I'm uh, very, I'm interested to see where it goes next. Uh, I know that there's supposed to be this series of debates in the fall. This Pangborn program, which I don't know. If, yeah, which and they seem to charge a, a massive amount of money. So you know, I mean, that, that, yeah, they have like really expensive tickets. So
0: lots of lots of privilege in the room.
1: Lots of privilege in the room. I mean, I will, I'm hoping to attend some of those. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to use my media privilege of, you know, get past this, but we'll see if that works.
0: Any final words for listeners? Some positives, some ways forward?
1: Uh, positive. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I. you know, I often say that after November 2016, I'm out of the prediction business because, you know, I said, like, my mom, who just really detests Donald Trump, you know, she, She. my mom kept asking me, he can't possibly win, can he? I was like, no, he's not going to win, you know, it's ridiculous. Uh, no, 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 that's just not going to happen. And it's not that my mom was such a big Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. fan, but, you know, she just... He really hates Trump. Uh, So, you know, so ever since then, I have given up on forecasting. However, you know, I think the bad thing, I guess, is that the the culture as we know it has kind of been smashed to smithereens, (laughs) you know, basically. So I think, you know, a lot of the standards that we have been used to really no longer exist. I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, that's the bad news, but in a way, that's also the good news, I think. We're kind of almost starting with a blank slate, so to speak, you know, to use a loaded term. <laughs> um,
0: Steven Pinker's in the IDW as well, huh?
1: Sort of, yeah, yeah. Or I guess he's another adjacent, maybe. So, yeah, I mean, I think that we, there's a lot of room right now for new and creative ideas, which means that, you know, a lot of those ideas are going to be bad, you know? And I think there is, there's also room, I think, for some bold and unorthodox thinking that could also, you know, lead us to something good. So, I think that's the most optimistic thing I can say. I think we have a lot of ideas that we're going to have to, you know, sift through in the next couple of years. And you know, I don't know how. I mean, the current situation. I'm not sure how long it can last. And you know, because the, the state of upheaval of cultural upheaval that we're in right now, I think, is extremely disorienting. I think the the polarization is very concerning. There there is this very real tendency, more than ever, to see people on the other side politically as the enemy. I think that, you know, on both sides, really, there's an amount of um, kind of paranoia and hysteria about, you know, the other side uh, that is extremely troubling. That's not very optimistic. I think the good news, maybe, is that, um, you know, maybe this is like a cleansing fire, so to speak. You know, like, maybe when we get through this, you know, and hopefully we will get through this uh, without a civil war. Uh, (laughs) Hopefully, you know, we can start relearning how to talk to each other. And uh, I guess the, 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 the good news is that a lot of the ideas that are being kind of you know thrown by the wayside are bad ideas that weren't really working. So, you know, hopefully, I mean, you know, we'll we'll see. We'll see. We'll uh, you know, hopefully what will emerge from all this is a uh, kind of more viable liberalism. And you know, by liberalism I don't necessarily mean liberalism in the American sense. I mean, I think it's been kind of observed that both American liberalism and, and American conservatism are liberal in a way because, you know, they kind of rooted in the idea of individual freedom, the idea of you know personal autonomy, the idea of, you know, the kind of free marketplace of ideas. And I think this is what we should be striving. I think the good scenario is that, you know, between the polar opposites or you know the horseshoe really of, you know, authoritarian populism a la Trump on one side and authoritarian leftism, authoritarian progressivism on the other side, hopefully you know, both sane conservatives and sane liberals can agree on uh, certain basic principles such as, you know, individual dignity, you know, personal autonomy, not treating people according to labels, you know, respecting diversity of ideas. So that's the good scenario. I think the good scenario is that, you know, the sane uh, left will reject, you know, the intersectional social social just cult, and the sane right will reject the populist uh, Trump cult. and And then we can come together to say, you know, yeah, we have certain differences about things like the size of government, we have certain differences about, let's say, the criminal justice system, we have certain differences about foreign policy, but, you know, we can all agree on these basic values of, uh, you know, individual dignity, of, you know, treating people as individuals, you know, respecting uh, the free exchange and diversity of ideas. And, uh, you know, that's that's the good scenario. And I mean, it's, it's happening in some quarters of culture, and I think that's good. And, you know, maybe we'll see more of that.
0: All right, good. And how can people find you online?
1: Oh, people can always find me on Twitter. I am at Kathy Young 63 uh, It's uh, Kathy with a C. And I actually have a website that I haven't updated in ages. It's KathyYoung.net. Uh, and I really need to get that updated.
0: All right. Very good. Thanks for your time today. And thanks to listeners.
1: All right. Well, thank you.
0: Visit my website at com, where you can connect with me on social media. Find past episodes and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work by becoming a donor through Patreon or PayPal to receive special perks, using referral links in the Donate tab on my website, and sharing my content. Email me with your thoughts, Vakula at gmail.com. Podcast music, used with permission, is brought to you by Phil Giordano's symphonic metal group, Fairyland, from their album, Score to a New Beginning. John Bartman offered free consultation and audio edits for episodes 51 through 63. Thanks to generous patrons and fans of this podcast who help support my work. Have a great day.